Welcome to the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast. The EHS exists to explore all aspects and all periods of the history of Christianity. And in our podcasts, we welcome guests to discuss a wide range of topics. If you want to know more about the EHS, then visit our website, ecclesiasticalhistorysociety.com, or our social media pages. for joining us for this EHS podcast episode. I'm your host, Angela Platt, a PhD student at Royal Holloway investigating religious families and love in the 18th and 19th centuries. Today I'm joined by Dr. Robert W. Daniel. Dr. Daniel is Associate Lecturer in English Literature at the University of Warwick. He's also Managing Editor of the Journal for Bunyan Studies and General Secretary of the International John Bunyan Society. His publications include several book chapters, articles, and edited collections on the religious and literary culture of post-Reformation Britain, the most recent of which includes Protestant Devotional Identities in Early Modern England, published with Manchester University Press in 2020. Robert was also recently awarded the EHS President's Prize for the best communication by an ECR in 2020 and 2021. And indeed, we'll be discussing that particular paper, which is to be published in Studies in Church History by next summer. And that article is called Godly Preaching in Sickness and Ill Health in 17th Century England. I'm so pleased to be here today with Dr. Robert W. Daniel discussing his article, Godly Preaching in Sickness and Ill Health in 17th Century England, which actually won the President's Prize for Best ECR Communication quite recently and is coming out in our forthcoming volume uh, with the EHS, uh, Studies in Church History. It's coming out next summer in the Church in Sickness and in Health volume. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Robert. It's an absolute pleasure. No, let's dive right in to your article then. So firstly, just thinking about context, can you describe the context of sickness and ill health in the 17th and 18th centuries? So broadly speaking, what were the common ailments you have been analyzing in this article and what were their prognoses? Well, in the, in the 17th century, uh, um, it was a very sickly age. Uh, you know, illness seemed to be everywhere, around every corner, and on the minds of everyone. Um, and in the article, I look at a variety of illnesses across a broad spectrum. Um, and, and, and some were routine for the period, uh, were very common, such as colds, uh, shakes, fevers, back pain, toothaches, orgs, nausea, and vomiting. Um, but some were more serious conditions, uh, such as migraines, concussions, gangrenated limbs, pneumonia, uh, and possibly dementia or memory loss um, due to dotage. Um, in terms of their prognoses, I mean, it was hard to tell during this period when any ailment was fleeting or fatal. Uh, and most clergymen, and indeed most sick, most sick patients of the period, had to play a waiting game. Um, you know, and to give you an example, orgs um, involved a raft of symptoms, uh, such as, and I'm quoting here, um, shaking, giddiness, drowsiness, headache, um, and an inclination uh, to vomit. Um, and as a result, they could be anything from influenza to malaria 
or an intermittent fever. So it was very hard for physicians or family members even um, to be able to tell whether an ailment um, was due to a, a, a particular um, disease or if it was just uh, your occasional flu or cold. So you mentioned clergymen in your answer, and indeed in your article, you are specifically looking at sickness of clergymen. What were the predominant views towards sickness in sermons and didactic literature written by clergymen and others? I think one of the um, the biggest things that anyone will see when they sort of um, ream through the, the literature of the period is that it's preparation, preparation, preparation. Um, sickness was not a question of if, but when, um, and it was imminent and ever-present. Um, and to give you an example, the, the Lud- Ludlow clergyman Robert Horn summed up the sentiment of the age rather well when he preached that, I know not when I shall die, and therefore every day shall be as my dying day. So sermons, treaties, broadsides, and ballads, and manuals of all kinds ask people to collect scriptures when in health to be used during ill health, because they were likely to get sick. Um, And sickness had to be observed. This was another sort of crucial element. Um, You had to know your Bible and collect your scriptures, but you also had to um, have a list of of friends, family, um, neighbors, and even servants who you could call on to observe you when you fell sick um, so that they could uh, examine your acts and emulate them or admonish you uh, for making them. And this was because uh, piety uh, was recognizable uh, uh, and if it was recognizable, uh, it could then be repeatable. Um, and so certain illnesses uh, uh, were, we sort of see a hierarchy of, of illnesses. So th- th- during this period under Calvinism, sin was always seen as a, uh, as a punishment for sin. And, and one of the things that these treaties sort of wax lyrical about is that uh, certain illnesses were the cause of certain sins. Um, To give you an example, stomach aches uh, were seen as a cause of gluttony, or ear aches were the cause of inattentiveness during church sermons. Um, And this could be taken to logical extremes. Um, One individual in London in the 1660s uh, blamed his lameness um, uh, due to having a lame heart. In other words, his, his spiritual lameness or inattentiveness to religious duties. Um, The other aspect that we we sort of see during the period to do with uh, illness was that, and I find this very intriguing, is is that some clergymen uh, went on to practice medicine. Uh, And this was particularly uh, common with ejected clergymen after the act of uniformity uh, they, you know, they no, they lost their livings, and they went on to become medical practitioners. And indeed, some serving clergymen, um, who were vicars, were licensed to practice physic. Uh, and so, what this did, what this sort of created, is a tension between physicians um, and, and and ministers and clergymen. And the sick had to sort of make a choice about who they would call. And sometimes you see in the archive. Um, awkward meetings where the physician is leaving the home and the minister's just walking in and there's an awkward moment where, you know, they're sort of sizing each other up. Um, And so those are the predominant aspects that you see um, in the printed literature of the period, that you had to be prepared, uh, that you had to decide who you were going to call, 
um, your minister or your physician, um, and that you had to try and not just diagnose what was making you ill, but what could be the spiritual causes of that illness. Uh, so, Robert, thinking about the answer that you just gave then and how you were talking about how you would have some clergymen who were also physicians or doctors, and then you also had doctors uh, sort of from the general public who, who weren't uh, also clergymen. Was there a distinction in how they would treat patients then in how the clergymen doctors and the non-clergymen doctors would treat patients? Well, the, 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 I mean, in theory, in theory, um, all physicians were meant to include a religious element to their treatments. And we do have some examples of this. So, so some, some physicians would um, have a collection of prayers in a notebook that they would pray with and through um, uh, with, their, with their sick patients to put them at ease um, and, 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 as it were, to treat uh, the potential spiritual causes as well as the physical ones. Um, clergymen would always gravitate first towards their religious um, commitments and duties towards the sick. Uh, but like I say, they were licensed, some were licensed to practice physic. And, and you do find sick patients occasionally asking them um, to recommend what they should take uh, uh, to treat themselves. And so I suppose it, you will find that most physicians would gravitate first towards the, the medical treatment um, and, and clergymen would always be the religious treatment um, uh, and, and, and therapy first. Uh, and, and that's the sort of difference. But there, there, were, there were problems that uh, uh, benefited um, clergymen over physicians. There was a huge um, debate about whether uh, physicians were avaristic, um, whether their treatments were as effective as they, they promised them to be. And there's certainly a lot of literature, uh, primary literature, to show that when physicians had diagnosed um, man, woman, or child as being very near death and saying that there's no hope, there's nothing you can do, and, and, and they would leave, those individuals would miraculously recover. And, and, and this meant that when we get to the restoration there are publications by physicians who are seriously concerned about a loss of public trust in the use of physic and indeed in, in the medical profession. So, so clergymen um, didn't seem to suffer the same sort of um, skepticism and scrutiny. And, and because the 17th century was, 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 a, was an overtly religious age, uh, my sense is that most people would rather have a minister attend to them who may be useful additionally in, in, the, in the dosage of physic than rather have um, a physician who would cost a lot of money. It wasn't cheap. Um, uh, they would, you know, they, they would, and also may not be of the same religious mind. There, there, was, there was a lot of thinking that if you were treated by... Um, Let's say you were a Puritan and you were treated by uh, a, a Church of England uh, adherent physician um, that by treating you with their physic um, and, and, and sort of uh, their, their social engagement with you, they could actually taint you. They could taint your spiritual conscience. Um, and so there's, there's some discussions about whether, whether that's sort of dangerous, whether, whether physicians can convert their, their patients um, uh, and change their religious beliefs.
Thank you. That's really interesting. Um, so drilling a bit further into your article, then, can you tell us what is the central argument that you give in this article? Um, I, I, I try to argue that uh, godly clergymen not infrequently preached while suffering from a variety of illnesses, uh, major or minor, um, and that this provides a, a reconceptualization uh, of early modern preaching as a total commitment of the body and not just the mind or soul, and thereby incorporates the somatic into the somonic. So I wonder, could you expand a bit more and talk about what you mean by incorporating the somatic into the sermonic? Well, what this article tries to do is, is, is really examine not what ministers preached um, or how they preached, um, but how they were feeling when they preached. And I think that's something that I haven't seen in scholarship, and, and I was quite surprised when I started doing research and, and seeing more and more examples of the kinds of bodily illnesses that, that preachers were encountering um, while at the pulpit. And that, for me, gave, gave me a new appreciation for how hard it must have been to deliver a message um, succinctly, clearly, um, ministers had to use a raft of, of rhetorical skills um, to deliver uh, their messages uh, across uh, sometimes large churches. Um, and, and, and so I, I suddenly thought, well, how does that impact their message? Um, you know, it, and, and, and it depends on the illness as well. Um, if uh, a minister is screeching with pain um, when discussing the souls in hell, how much of that of that performance is based on his actual um, his actual affliction rather than just a, a dramatized um, performance? It's, it's not, in other words, it's not affected. It's quite quite real um, that expression of pain and. This suddenly, for me, made the lived religion of of listening to sermons very real. Um, and and because congregants never knew how could they whether a preacher would make it through the whole sermon uh, if they if they were very ill, you just never knew. Because, like I say, it's quite hard to diagnose. Um, if, if a minister was sweating, if he had a fever, you never knew whether that fever was um, uh, fleeting or fatal. Um, and, and so it, it, it gave me a sense of the tension, the tension in, in, in sermons um, from the congregants' point of view. There is some evidence to suggest um, some ministers recorded that they would be in a great deal of pain before they got to the pulpit. Um, but then they would, uh, by the grace of God, feel none and suddenly have a burst of, of energy and deliver the sermon. But as soon as they came out of the pulpit, they, they literally fainted. They would need help um, to get home because they would be drained of all, of all energy. Um, in other words, we were seeing the effects of adrenaline. Um, but I, I think that that sort of um, ability to work through the pain and hide it uh, wasn't as common. Um, I, I think 
most ministers, particularly those who um, were sort of in their twilight years, um, didn't really mind their congregants seeing their their uh, their agonies, their pain, um, because they they had sort of lost the will to hide it, um, uh, uh, and and so I think I think it just, it just for me it really brought uh, the reality of preaching in a sickly age um, right to the forefront, and it made it made it made the accounts I was investigating very vivid, um, and I had a lot of sympathy for these men who 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 like I say sometimes excruciating. Illnesses. I mean, gangrenated limbs are incredibly painful, um, and delivering delivering an hour or two hour long sermon is it's just extraordinary. Um, uh, or, or falling off a horse, having a concussion, having blurred vision, and then and then going on to preach. Uh, just extraordinary. Uh, uh, you know, and it, it must have been something to see uh, from a congregant's point of view, um, and and must have made for better or worse. Um, sermon performances, fascinating, interesting, riveting uh, affairs. And what have other scholars noted regarding the context of your argument or, or regarding sickness, ill health, and religion in the 17th century? There's been a, a great deal of really exciting um, and important research on early modern illness in the last 10 years. Um, and I couldn't hope to go through all of it um, here, but I'll just pick out a few that that, that I think are already significant. Um, Andrew Cambers has shown us how the sick actually read a, a great deal um, in their bedchambers, and that often their reading was socially imbricated. It was communal. Um, they had texts read to them, uh, and that this was an important part of the therapy of getting better. Other scholars like Hannah Newton have shown us um, contrary to popular belief, that several patients did indeed recover from serious um, illnesses. And, and, and Newton demonstrates that the processes and procedures by which those convalescences um, were navigated were just as important as how you documented um, your sickness. Um, and Newton has also shown uh, that the, the import of material aspects of the sick chamber, so the use of bed sheets, curtains, tapestries, and clocks, and how they played a key role in the experiences um, of the sick. Another uh, great scholar, Olivia Weiser, has shown us that emotions were often viewed as the cause of illness during the early modern period. Um, and then this has implications for the way we view gender. Uh, Weiser, for example, has argued that um, intense feelings like grief or fear could cause ill health instantly for women, uh, but that this was uh, really the case for men whose anxiety disorders stemmed more from occupational uh, and financial concerns. Um, and I've written about elsewhere uh, how men and women from various denominational backgrounds used the same uh, scriptural coda when uh, they were sick to enact a variety of gestures um, and attitudes. Uh, and these included using the same scriptures to defend making a will when sick or demonstrating patience um, or making a sickbed covenant, um, or if they were fortunate enough um, to offer up recovery praise in a hymn or a psalm um, once they had got better. So I, I think that, that gives a, a sort of a brief 
um, cursorial overview of some of the um, insights that have been offered on illness in early modern England. Uh, but like I said, I can't do it justice. It, there's been so much important work. But I think what the last 10 years has done is offer a real holistic approach to the experiences of illness in early modern England. We know far more now than we used to. And I think it's it's offered uh, an important demarcation from research that was done in the 1980s and 1990s on the, on the, on the deathbed. So we, we, we begin, we're slowly beginning to understand that there is a difference between the two. So then continuing on and reflecting on, on some of the scholarship, the context that you've just given, and moving back to your argument. So how does your research reflect lived religion of English Protestantism in the 17th century? Well, I think it, it radically changes the way we think about early modern preaching, not just as an intellectual or spiritual exercise, but as a physically onerous one. Um, and the importance of uh, robust, uh, robust preaching ministry amongst uh, Puritan clerics in particular was not just simply uh, a theological notion, uh, because those who campaigned for and practiced it knew they did so to the detriment of their bodies believed that it was for the betterment of other souls. Um, and the experience of sickness uh, was not an accepted part of, um, sorry, was an accepted part of a clergyman's vocation, and that his sufferings had to be seen publicly rather than concealed privately. And this was to build faith and serve as a living exemplar. Consequently, being a minister, um, particularly a godly one, came at a cost, whereby you were expected to have exchanged your sickbed for your pulpit. And I, I think that that changes the way that we see um, lived religion. And it also, it's a two-way street. Because ministers were expected to preach when ill, they also expected their congregants to attend church when unwell. And, and we obviously, th that goes entirely against our um, modern notion of health and safety. But if you, if you were able um, I mean, if you were deathly ill, that was not expected. The minister had to come visit you. But if you if you had a cold or a flu um, and you didn't attend church, you, you were in a great deal of trouble. Um, and it was believed that God would withhold his healing from you. So it was a two-way street. And I, I think that changes the way that we, we see church attendance. It was not just a religious or legal commitment. But actually, many, many individuals attended church um, because they saw it as a, as a way of receiving divine healing. What, can, you, can you tell us a bit about what sources you consulted for this research? I examined mostly prosopographical works, um, such as diaries, journals, letters, autobiographies, um, but also printed sermons, martyrologies, conduct books, and devotional literature. So a, a wide array of texts. And this was deliberate because I wanted to really flesh out and give a, give a, a wide overview of the experiences uh, and the perceptions of how congregants and ministers viewed sickly preaching. And through the course of this research and considering all the sources you've consulted, what have you found most interesting or surprising? Um, I, I was certainly surprised that there was not a lot of advice on this practice um, of preaching when ill in um, printed conduct literature, um, which was often written, of course, by clergymen. Um, and, and this was a bit of a revelation, and I sort of scratched my head. I couldn't quite figure it out, especially given the number of contemporary debates surrounding whether ministers should stay with or flee from uh, their flocks during times of plague. You, you just don't see conduct manuals discussing 
where the minister should or should not preach with influenza, for example. Um, and I'll give you an, a famous example, um, and one that I was quite shocked by, um, when I came across uh, uh, George Herbert's um, famous, famous treatise on the country parson, where he said it was the duty of a, a minister to preach constantly, uh, and the pulpit was to be his joy and his throne. Um, but Herbert provided an exception to this, and he said that the only time a minister was to leave off his preaching was for want of health. Um, and, and, and that in all things, a minister should never, and I quote, overdo it to the loss of their quiet and health. So there you have a, a, an example of someone, I mean, George Herbert was the darling of, of early modern England. His poetry was quoted um, by all sides of the political and religious aisle. So quite a, quite a prominent figure saying that actually ministers should stay at home if they're sick. And quite clearly, this advice was not followed um, by ministers, uh, you know, uh, uh, up and down the country. Um, so I was quite surprised by that. And I was also slightly bemused by why ministers or how ministers were able to endure some of the afflictions that they had while preaching. I mean, you know, if you've got pneumonia, um, heaven knows how they were able to preach with that with that uh, uh, affliction, and 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 yet we have accounts that tell us that you know, the congregation were more moved when ministers preached when ill because it they, they they saw the sermon dramatically. It was more resting. The minister could die at at any at any moment, and indeed some did. Um, I was flabbergasted to find quite a few examples of ministers who dropped dead in, in their pulpits. I mean, it's completely extraordinary. Um, uh, and so, yes, I, I, I was quite, uh, the more I looked into it, the more that I discovered that actually um, attending a sermon in early modern England, you just never knew what to expect. Um, uh, and and, and, and in, in some senses, it links with recent research on how early modern sermons were very much uh, theatrical performances. Um, uh, and and the audience played a part in, in 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 that construction. That's really interesting that you mentioned finding examples of of ministers preaching until they dropped dead, uh, because that that came to mind as you were talking. I was thinking if these if these clergymen are preaching just regardless of whatever illness they're suffering through, there must be examples. I was just wondering whether there would be examples of them literally preaching until they drop dead. Um, can you tell us a bit about some of those examples? There's a common a common maxim uh, adapted by um, Vespasian that it becometh it becometh best a bishop to die preaching in the pulpit, um, and this was used in a ton of printed materials, um, biographies, martyrologies, uh, and this was adopted by or was said to be the 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 methodology and and, and um, ethos of several several ministers. Uh, so to give you some examples, uh, the vicar of Wormingford um, in Essex, Thomas Pilgrim, suffered a seizure in 1644 and fell down dead in his pulpit. Um, a year later, the Newbury pulpitarian uh, William Twiss uh, fainted while preaching at St. Andrew's uh, Holborn. And when John Oakes died uh, in the middle of preaching a sermon in London in 1689, his eulogist asked, um, of his congregation, 
was he not thus stricken for your rebellion against his cause? So it's quite interesting that even the deaths of clergymen at the pulpit could be used um, as a sermon to galvanize or chastise um, a congregation. And we can only imagine how how upsetting that must have been to congregants. Um, But I think there was a great deal of pressure on ministers to preach in all seasons, regardless of their health or ill health. And we do know for a fact, Isaac Archer, for example, the Cambridgeshire uh, clergyman who suffered with a raft of um, illnesses, toothache, migraines, and a series of warts, he would he would often go out to preach and he would say um, in his diary that my health or my ill health is in the hands of the Lord. And it's not for me to question um, uh, which of those God chooses to give me. It's my duty to go out regardless. So I, I think, again, that, that opened my eyes to the added responsibility that ministers had. And they had a great deal of responsibilities and duties, which um, were incredible. I mean, absolutely incredible. The, the workload, the sheer workload that they got through, I think we are only beginning to appreciate. Um, and, and this was one of them, that they, if they were feeling slightly ill, they had to go and preach. And preaching, as, as we know, is the article... Um, tries to make clear, was very hard on the body. Um, it took a toll. Uh, and, you know, particularly godly preachers who would sometimes preach for for two hours or more, um, and, and particularly nonconformist preachers who, who might be preaching, you know, uh, seven times in, in, in as many days, um, it, 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 there was a physiological side effect. Um, and and so I think that uh, uh, that that must have added a great deal of pressure um, to the vocation uh, of the ministry. So thinking about vocation, then Robert, um, I wonder if you would be able at all to comment on the expectations or this pressure in the vocation of preaching versus the similar pressure on other vocations of the time. Um, because Tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm expecting or anticipating that people who were working in the 17th century probably did have to work just about until they dropped dead. And so what was the distinctive significance about clergymen doing this? I mean, was there something special about the vocation of preaching that made preaching until you drop dead something a lot different than working in a mine, for instance, or something else? Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, Hannah Newton has done some work on this, that um, the the laity were just as uh, committed to to working through their illness as, as the clergy were. Um, but I think the performativity of giving a sermon in a sacred space, a church, and of course, remember, um, if you were high up the social ladder, you were buried uh, under a pew um, uh, and nearest to the altar, you know, the closer you got to being, to being buried under the altar, the more important you were. Um, uh, and, 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 and that context of delivering God's word, but being so close to heaven as well, that sort of liminal space, that that grabbed people's attention, I think, um, and and it made the words 
like I say, more more performatively effective because you can see illness, you see you see the preachers struggling, and, th- and there are some uh, uh, accounts of congregants complaining that they struggle to hear the sermon. Um, um, but uh, like I say, but others did record saying that it, they found it more resting, that they found it more engaging, and 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 the minister was able to to gauge their attention. And I, I think it was just this, this aspect of listening to a sermon um, that that was it, particularly if it was discussing eternity, um, uh, and 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 the minister themselves was so close to to or could be close to touching heaven. Um, that that made the message more pertinent. Um, to give you an example, a concrete example, it was said of Richard Baxter, who who's the famous moderate dissenter of the 17th century, that he preached as a dying man to dying men, um, and that's absolutely true. My article, uh, one of the nuggets that I that I discovered, was that one of the last times that Baxter preached, um, we have a, a, a letter from someone who had uh, heard that Baxter had to leave off his sermon early. Um, and there was, a, there was a concern that, that he was so close to death that the, that the letter writer was asking whether um, Baxter was still alive. Um, and, and so I, I think it, it just made sermons far more pertinent to congregants in an age that was so full of sickness and, and ill health that it, it made people stand up and pay attention. And also, um, as you say, that the, the, the laity were quite used to, was expected, they had to make money. If they were ill, they still had to work. But for a minister to preach while ill, it, 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 from the congregants' point of view, I think they thought that there was a little bit more respect for the minister because he was doing what they would have to do, um, uh, not just vocationally, um, but also... Uh, that th- that he was he, he to put it succinctly that he was able to preach on illness because he himself was visibly ill. So shifting to some more personal questions, then can you tell us what interested you in this avenue of research? Well, I I, I, I sort of stumbled upon it accidentally. I, I came across um, a few examples. My my first um, point of uh, contact was Isaac Archer, as I mentioned uh, earlier. Um, really fascinating Cambridge um, minister uh, who worked within the, the Church of England, um, but uh, obtained a license to hold a Presbyterian meeting um, uh, after the Restoration, um, and and suffered from a raft of of um, terrible illnesses and had had a great deal of. Uh, tragedy within his own family. Um, many of his children died quite young in, in infancy, um, and I came across these examples of of initially him uh, having toothache and then preaching, or, or having a series of orgs, and then still working through his 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 preaching. Um, and he also had a stammer. He also had a stammer, and he said that if he preached too long, that the stammer would um, would nearly kill him. Uh, and and I thought, well, this must be an oddity. And and then I started to come across more and more and more examples of clergymen uh, preaching when 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 seriously unwell. And and I I start to to think, well, there must be a paradigm here. Um, 
and and the more I looked, the more I found, and and the more the cases became more extreme, and 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 I've always been interested in um, lived religion uh, uh, and 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 capturing the experiences, the lesser known experiences of religious life in, in early modern England, and uh, yeah, the more the more I looked, the more I found, um, and and I've always had an interest in the medical humanities, um, as some of my other articles will show. Uh, but but this this really fascinated me and 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 I th- I think gave me uh, an in depth insight into into uh, the hidden lives um, in terms of as scholarship is concerned the hidden lives of um, of clergymen and some of the sacrifices and costs uh, 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 that it took. I was really interested in in you talking about kind of what inspired you in. in diving into this research. And it also made me think of a comment that you made earlier. I can't remember which question we were discussing, but when you talked about the importance of who was attending to people as the physician and how if it was sort of the wrong person or considered the wrong person, it could taint them spiritually in some way. And it just made me think about how that might have resonance with more recent debates uh, in the 19th, 20th, even 21st century on mental health and religiosity. I mean, have you thought about how that connects with what you've been looking at in the 17th century? Um, a, li- a little bit. Uh, this idea of of um, of ideologies being contagious, and 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 you know, your your thinking is defined by the company you keep. Um, and indeed, that 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 was a maxim in in the seventeenth century. It, it you know people understood um, in in a very simplistic way that that whoever you spent time with could. Uh, change your thinking um, could could either affirm it um, or, or radically alter it, um, and I I think in terms of mental health, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, is is that one thing I I certainly came across, um, but I could only mention it very briefly in the article, was how preaching when unwell on top of all the other duties that, that ministers had to do, I, I was starting to see expressions of what looked like um, mental um, ill health uh, by ministers who, who, who were making remarks that, 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 that seemed to sound very similar to depression or manic depression. Um, uh, I didn't come across any suicidal tendencies, um, but, but certainly I think there is scope to examine how ministers ministered to themselves or who ministered to ministers um, to to cope with the heavy workload that they had and the expectations thrown upon them. I mean, for example, um, ministers were not really prepared. uh, I've spoken about this before. um, Prepared to to visit the sick and, and, and see very sick individuals who were catatonic, um, or were deathly ill and were unable to respond to their questions in order to discern whether they were uh, destined for heaven uh, or not, or, or, or be able to discern whether they were in a right place with God. And, and this had traumatic effects for ministers because they felt they couldn't do their job properly, had they failed um, uh, the congregant, the sick individual, 
um, was it so, was it something that they uh, were weak at? Were they asking the wrong questions? Um, and and you know Henry Newcomb notes this, um, the great Mancurian preacher, who he, he says in his diary, you know, Lord, I don't know how to deal with sick people. Please help me. Um, uh, and and th- there are there are several expressions by ministers that I think can come under the umbrella of mental. Um, uh, ill health or, or concerns over their own mental health that we would understand um, much better now. Uh, uh, and, and, and the mechanisms that they used to solve those, I think, is quite intriguing because, of course, ministers really, as public figures, couldn't really show much weakness. Um, yes, they were allowed to be ill in the pulpit, of course, but but in terms of asking for help, uh, I, I would be intrigued to know... Um, their support mechanisms. I mean, you often see marriages are quite crucial. Clerical marriages are very important. Um, uh, and, and their wives are often uh, proficient in the use of physic or, or um, would be giving advice to their husbands, such as, you know, take a long walk um, or, or stop studying. Um, uh, you know, you need to rest. So so I, I think that that's quite an intriguing aspect um, to, to thinking about how... Um, mental health was was tackled um and 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 dealt with in the early modern period thank you uh before i let you go uh having discussed your your article i wonder if you can tell us a bit about any other projects that you are currently working on or have recently worked on or to put it more succinctly what's next for you i have uh, two articles that have come out recently in december 2021 the first of these uh, is on child loss persecution and the experience of nonconformist women in 17th century England that appeared in Women's History Today. The second article is on urban fire narratives and the use of biblical tropes in early modern England and that appeared in the most recent issue of Bunyan Studies. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing all of that with us. We look forward to seeing the fruits of your continuing research, of course. Um, and if our listeners would like to read the article that we've been discussing today, just to note again that it's coming out in the next edition of Studies in Church History with our society, the volume called Church in Sickness and in Health, which should be out um, summer of 2022. Thanks so much for joining us, Robert. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast. Stay tuned for our next podcast episode, which will be advertised on our social media pages. If you're not currently a member of EHS, we highly recommend you consider doing so. It's a great opportunity to network with other like-minded historians and keep abreast of latest research in the field. More information is on our website, ecclesiasticalhistorysociety.com.